The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you. It's really, I really like coming down here. It's not that bad a drive, actually. <laughs> People can't believe it. But I, I like to think, you know, what would a hundred years ago, what would an hour and a half trip be? Nothing. So, so I'm really pleased to be here. I thought um, I would uh, talk tonight about, boy, what's really thick in the culture right now. It doesn't take much to the political stuff is out there. Um, it's getting everybody's attention, unless you're sort of oblivious. <laughs> um, it's it's you know really really thick out there, and so I wanted to talk about politics in the context of the Dharma, or the Dharma in the context of politics. Um, I I actually I made my my uh, living uh, in in politics both on the academic side, teaching and, and also as a practical practicing politician for years. And I like to think, and even used to say, probably used to say, I'm about to say it now, that um, political science is to politics the way literary criticism is to literature. And we, we tend to think about politics in a very different way than we then politics is performed, then politics is acted out. We also like to think that we're not politicians, that politicians are something other than us. You know. um, but that's sort of like thinking, you know, there are, there are professional runners. I like to watch marathon races because I can't do them. And, uh, uh, you know, professional athletes go about their task in a very different way, a very intentional way. Uh, all of us can walk and maybe run a few steps. Maybe some of us even uh, run as a hobby or as a as a health thing. But it's very different if you're a professional athlete. I, I met a, a woman from Davis who was a, a professional triathlete. Professional. She made her living at it, and she worked at it five to six hours a day. Uh, every day, her bike and her running and swimming. Uh, very intentional and very focused. Uh, and we all are, are politicians. We all act politically. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about what that means. <clears throat> the people who are professionals and who are out there in the public arena, they do it with the kind of intentionality, the kind of focus uh, on, on the development of skill. Uh, the same way that, that a professional athlete does, a professional runner. So what's political, what is political uh, action? Um, I like to, I, I like to uh, think that lobbying is the, the ultimate political act. And lobbying is really just about getting what you want from somebody else, getting somebody else to do what you want them to do. You know. um, if you look at the political scientists and they talk about power, oh, it's unbelievable. I went to Wikipedia. Wikipedia says, power is the capacity to restructure actual situations. And I thought, how like a social scientist? You know, it's the, the capacity to restructure actual situations. Um, and then in, in 
social science, they'll, they'll distinguish power from authority because authority is legitimate and power. But really, power is just the ability to get what you want. It's about wanting and about pursuing the object of desire. Um, it's not really very complicated, but in that sense, it's very much uh, out of the Dharma. You know, the Buddha said that we are hardwired uh, so that every moment is either pleasant or unpleasant or perhaps neither. But I sort of see that as a continuum with the neither sort of kind of hard to hit. If you pay close enough attention to any given moment, it will feel pleasant or unpleasant. And when it's pleasant, we want more of it. And, and when it's unpleasant, we want less, right? I mean, or unless you got your wiring crossed and you want more of the unpleasant stuff, but mostly we like it pleasant. In whatever way, whatever, whatever that might mean for us. We like it pleasant. And so we try to get what we want. And we practice from when we're really little. You know, I'll be your best friend uh, if you give me your peanut butter sandwich. Right? Sometimes that may not be exactly the most winning offer. But we get, we, we lobby other people by offering them reward and threatening punishment. Simple. Threatening unpleasant experience, offering pleasant experience. Pretty simple. Um, the politics of hope and the politics of fear are referred to pretty generally out there in the, in the, uh, uh, in the media. You know, vote for me, it'll be great. Vote for my opponent, it'll be horrible. Isn't that sort of what everybody does? Um, I did. <laughs> you know, and if you're, if you're above the fray, you, you just describe the wonders of the world that you will create if you, uh, uh, and, and people people uh, go along. The carrot and the stick. You know the the object. You know you know the old cartoon about how you move a donkey. You dangle a carrot in front of them and you hit them with a stick. Reward and punish. Pretty simple. And we're all subject to that. We're, we manipulate others by. Yeah. If you don't get the car in by ten o'clock, you know you won't drive it for a week. or reward. And, and we manipulate others, and others manipulate us. There was a, just a, any of you fans of The Wire? You know, the ending of The Wire happened on, on uh, Sunday. Absolutely fabulous show. Um, there was a scene where a young, uh, a young man was, who was about to uh, hit the streets as a drug addict, makes an approach to his his high school teacher to, uh, you know, to hustle him for some money. And the way he presents it isn't, isn't, you know, I need some money for some dope or I need some money for what he says. Look, you know, if you, if you, uh, for 150 bucks, I can go take the GED and I'll have a place to live. So he conjures the scenario that the teacher can't resist. Although the guy isn't a jerk. He says, I, not quite sure I believe you, but money isn't the issue. Um, you know, so we don't actually announce the play that we're about to run. No quarterback would. Uh, you try to be deceptive. But still, 
we try to get what we want by by uh, positing pleasant experience. Um, the notion here, of course, is that if we get what we want, we'll be happy. Isn't that sort of how we? Isn't that what we think? We really do. We we spend our lives doing that, even though we're not really overwhelmingly successful most of the time, and yet we're, we're, we still pursue that strategy. Um, you know, the uh, the notion that uh, we we can uh, we need to change the world is an interesting notion. We need to fix the world. Something's wrong with it, and it needs to be fixed. And that's sort of how uh, you know. We sort of think, and this is an interesting way that we project our own suffering into the world, our own dissatisfaction with the world. We uh, we sort of project it out into the world. There's something wrong. It needs to be fixed. I'm okay, but the world is not okay. But really, there's dissatisfaction, which isn't isn't there? Anybody here think the world is just peachy keen, wonderful place? You know, Byron Katie may be the only person who loves what is. <laughs> <laughs> That's the title of her book. Um, you know, with all its everything, warts, warts. It's worse than warts. Um, we think, um, and and so we project our dissatisfaction out onto the world, and think it needs to be fixed. Gil tells a little story sometimes about uh, some king back in the in the uh, some remote past about. The king who uh, stubbed his toe and he called his advisors and said, we got to put leather over the, over the whole world so I can't stub my toe again. And the advisor is smart and says, well, why don't we just make some shoes and then you can walk around. So you change yourself and not the world. But we have this orientation that our dissatisfaction with the world could be changed if we fixed it, if we made some changes according to our view of, of, uh, what it would take. This is the first, the first noble truth, the truth of dissatisfaction, the reality of, of uh, the unsatisfactoriness uh, of experience. If satisfaction is an issue for you, uh, dissatisfaction is, is going to be your lot and we'll experience it as there's something wrong out there. We need to fix it. And we all have our idea about how things uh, ought to be fixed, how things ought to be changed. Pleasant experience we often think of as, um, you know, in physical terms, because that's, that's uh, at least that's certainly how it came, came to me for years and years. It took me quite a while to realize that pleasant experience also includes Pleasant opinions, opinions that are in accord with the way we think things are, the way we think things ought to be. And so it's, it's, it's kind of tricky to talk about political, to politics and political opinions because it's one thing to say all opinions are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. But then if we pick on our own opinions, we say, well, yeah, but our opinions aren't really opinions. Those, you know, right? The universe is 13.7 billion years old. It's not 7,000 years old, right? Anybody 
or maybe you're part of the 18 billion year old crew, and then we can discuss that. But we think our, our opinions aren't opinions. Um, so it's it's actually kind of kind of um, kind of tricky to talk about this stuff. But at the base, politics begins with discontent. It be, it begins with dissatisfaction, with the notion that things need to be changed. And unless you've got a different experience of the world. Um, you know, the Buddha said, unpleasant experience is built in. It's built in dissatisfaction. Um, and it translates into political action when we say, well, someone is responsible for this mess. And we need to uh, do something. Something needs, to, something needs to be done. It's not supposed to be this way. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Um, and we, like I say, we have our ideas about how things should be, and we're attached to them. They're really embedded in our sense of who we are. You know, if you're a Democrat, can you imagine voting for a Republican, or vice versa? Can you imagine, um, if you have an opinion on, on, my gosh, on pick anything, gun control, diversity, um, things that we can want. I've made a list just because it's easier sometimes to talk concretely because abstractly it's easy to say everything is unsatisfactory. How about things we can want? Uh, A job, keys to the car, a ride to school, peace in the world, a piece of chocolate or a dozen eggs. The end to patriarchy. The, you want the person who cut me off in traffic to suffer. You want the DMV to have shorter lines. That must have come right after the, my thought of the person who cut me off in traffic. You want your medical records there when you need them. Right? You want politicians to be honest, or at least to be more skilled than some of them seem to be. Um, you could want the Ten Commandments in all courtrooms, or maybe not. You want the Dharma to be available to all people, or the Ten Commandments. Take your pick. You want to see social justice and equality, health care for all. You want agreement and support for your ideas about how things ought to be. I was talking to people in my sitting group the other night. A lot of people wanted to restructure the economic, the whole economic structure of of, uh, of our society. You know, people have great ideas about, you know, how to restructure things. I have no idea how. Of course, we don't know whether any of that would work. You know, and the the Fed has monetary policy, which they think will help. But who knows whether that's going to work? Things go as they go. But we see all these we see all these things out there. People acting in, um, on, on behalf of particular ideas. Uh, yes for gun control. No for gun control. Yes for abortion. Third party. Third. What is it? Third trimester. I mean, every everything is out there. Waterboarding. We like waterboarding or not? 
And we and what happens in our minds? Judgment shows up. Right? Things shouldn't be this way. They shouldn't be that way. Isn't that what happens to us? Judgment shows up. It doesn't it just shows up automatically. You don't even have to do it unless you really want to. It'll just show up on something unpleasant shows up, an unpleasant idea. Waterboarding will help us be more safe. We all know about waterboarding. We all live... Anybody not know about waterboarding? Okay, because we're all swimming in the same cultural soup here. You know. But we hear that and, and we, get, we get reactive. Right? I mean... We could, we could, it'd be easy to light everybody up here, just, uh, if I actually contended that waterboarding would make us more safe. Or maybe not. Maybe I'd have some allies. But the judgment just shows up automatically. We don't have to do anything about it because we're attached to an idea about the way things ought to be. Buddha said there were Four things that we attach to, that we cling to. Sensual pleasures is one. And sensual pleasures, you know, basically we think of them as the, in terms of the five senses. We like the room to be comfortable. If it's not comfortable, we'll try to turn up the thermostat or turn down the thermostat or turn up the lights or we try to make it more comfortable. Right? Don't we? Or, or do we... Do we say, oh boy, I can't wait to get home and turn down the thermostat so I'm miserable? We don't. We try to make it nice. And I tend to think of that the others all fall into the same, under, under this category because I, I, you know, the Buddha said there were, there were six senses. He had six sense bases. And the sixth is the mind. So, so the objects in the mind, we want them to be pleasant. We like our stories to have happy endings. We don't want to go see movies that have unhappy endings. You know, we like opinions that are in accord with our sensibilities. You know, we want our we want our life stories to make. We want things to be fair. We have ideas about you know how things ought to, ought to be fair. The other three things that the Buddha says we cling to are you know uh, we cling to uh, belief in the efficacy of rites and rituals. We believe we cling to uh, views and we cling to ideas of self. Ideas of self, ideas, views, ideas, rites and rituals, ideas about what will work, all seem to be mental, uh, mental objects that we cling to. We, we like, we attach to, we get mad when... I mean, some people are so attached to views, they, they go and blow themselves up and other people around them because they, you know, we get, we get, we get very, uh, it's, it's, you know, the notion of injustice can, can light us right up. We have ideas about what injustice is. Um, a politics is about pursuing what we want. Politicians are about pursuing what they want. Most of them are pretty attentive. Um, And we think that what we we want, uh, getting what we want will make us happy. 
that's pretty much delusional, but it doesn't keep us from working at it. Uh, you know, I remember Ajahn Sumedho tells a story about how when he was a little boy, he was with his mother at the store, and you know how they have the the you know at the checkout they've got the toys and stuff that hang at this level so that the kids. You know, and he he recalls telling us he, there was something I don't remember what it was. It was a toy dangling there, and he wanted it. And he said to his mother, uh, "You know, if you get me this toy, I'll never want another toy again." You know, and he said at, at that moment he actually thought that was true. <laughs> you know, but the Buddha said, "There's no amount of gold. There's no no end to wanting. Wanting." You know, pleasant experience shows up, we want more. Unpleasant experience shows up, we want less. We want more, we want less, we want more, less, more, less, more, less. That's, you know, we go through, and we, we're batted around by that. We're batted around by our experience. It, where is the freedom there? You know, we're, we're not free from the slavery of our views, our views, our ideas about the way things ought to be. And, and, and we're trapped. Because think about actually voting for, I mean, you can feel the attachment. Try, think of voting yes on something you oppose or voting no on something you support. You can just feel it. You know, think about voting for a candidate you who you don't like. I mean, feel the feel the uh, right. You can feel it, can't you? I mean, it's it's right there. That's our attachment. That's right there. That's our attachment. I'm not saying you should go out and do that. I'm just saying, let's notice notice where that is. So if what you want is pleasant, what you don't want, and you don't want the unpleasant, um, what if what you want, and, and that's, how, that's the political realm. Politicians, you know, they, they have, they're arguing over social policy, and we jump on the bandwagon, uh, you know, we root for our team, and it's sort of like sitting in the stands and watching the team play, football team, they move up and down the field, and we cheer when they're going in the right direction and we, we cringe when they're going in the wrong direction. That's, and we sort of are spectators of the political, the political you know, process. But what if what we want is, um, what if what we want is, is freedom? What if what we want is the end of suffering? You know, if that's if that's really what what we're what we're wanting, then going about changing the world isn't really the right. We're we're playing in the wrong venue. Um, freedom from from uh, suffering. The Buddha says the first step on the path is right understanding. Understanding things as they are, just seeing clearly how things are. Um, that understanding um, 
you know, is based on, you know, is based on awareness. Just seeing things clearly. Awareness itself is transforming. Seeing things clearly. Um, and when, and our intention, our actions in the world will be based on our understanding. So if we are deluded, if we're wrong about something, uh, we can make things worse, even with decent intentions. Anybody here not had that experience where you go off on something that, you know, um, where, where we've been wrong or where we later recognize we're older and wiser now and, boy, I wish I'd known then what I know now and all that kind of stuff. Um, so our intention flows from our understanding. The Buddha said there's some unskillful intentions and there are skillful intentions. The unskillful intentions are, ba- are, are uh, motivation by greed, wanting, wanting. Motivation from anger, ill will, and cruelty. The three unskillful. Cruelty, in this sense, I interpret that as the use of the stick. You know, punishing. Punishing your, your enemies. Rewarding your friends, punishing your enemies. Or, you know, you punish your friends. <laughs> um, if you do it too much, they probably won't be friends for very long. But it's, you know, we don't make it, you know, torch it. We don't waterboard them. But we, uh, we might be... Uh, willing to make it uncomfortable in order to persuade them to go along with us. So the unskillful intentions um, produce um, what? Not happiness. They They make things worse. They create more suffering. I remember listening to an NPR program. It was, I guess it was a talk of the nation a couple years ago. It was the holiday season, they're coming into Christmas, and it was like they had a panel of, of experts on how to deal with a holiday dinner, because maybe it was Thanksgiving, whatever it was, it was going to be a family event, and people, of course, are, you know, they shudder to think, but, you know, they can't stay away, so they all got, and, and the, the idea was, how do you survive the holiday dinner? And the experts, they had the psychologist and the etiquette person, and, you know, and they, and they were all giving advice. On, on how to dodge the question, how, and nobody said, nobody said, don't you be um, the bad actor at the table. You know, no matter what happens, don't you be uh, the one to make things worse. They were, you know, offering tactical advice. I'd like to talk a little bit about the skillful intentions because these kinds of, the skillful intention is not easy to imagine often. So I, I, I uh, um, you know, you can say that the skillful intentions are the opposite of the unskillful ones. So greed, the opposite of greed, generosity. The opposite of anger, metta, loving kindness. The opposite of cruelty would be uh, compassion. You can say that, abstract, 
sounds great, but what does it mean? It's, it's not easy to imagine. Um, so in the same way that, that you, know, you know, actually making political uh, ideas, political opinions visible is risky because we get reactive right away. Um, but it does clarify. I wanted to, um, I've got a, a couple of, of stories that I wanted to relate to illustrate these things. The Buddha said, let me just start. Um, but the Buddha was, was uh, this, is a, this is a story from the Majjhima, one of his cousins, a guy named Dandapani. Um, this is from uh, the Majjhima Nikaya. Just a, a brief little story. Uh, Dandapani was out roaming and rambling for exercise, uh, and he went, to the, he went to the great wood and Plunging into the great wood, he went to where the Blessed One was sitting under the bill of a sapling. On arrival, he exchanged courteous greetings with him, and after an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesy, he stood to one side. And while he was standing there, he said to the Blessed One, What is the contemplative's doctrine? What does he proclaim? And the Buddha responded, The sort of doctrine, friend, where one does not quarrel with anyone in the cosmos, I teach a dharma, I teach a doctrine that does not contend with anyone. What is that? What could that possibly... Can you imagine what that might be that would not contend with anyone? Any opinion you've got, someone's going to disagree with. I think. You can find someone somewhere to disagree with it. And if you can't, let me know and I'll disagree. (laughs) Somebody's going to... But he, he... A doctrine that does not contend with anyone. That's not the normal political idea. Non-greed. We know what greed is. It's wanting. And people will do all kinds of things for something they want, in my experience. And we get in trouble I mean, look at poor old uh, Elliot Spitzer. Just totally blow your life out of the water because of wanting. That's what people do. Except us, right? We haven't done anything like that, so we're we're safe. The object lessons. But what, you know, so you can say generosity. What was that, what might that mean? This is a story... um, from the life of the Buddha again. Um, it seems that there were uh, a community of monks at a place called Kosambi, and they got into a squabble over. These are monks. These are, you know, there, there was the uh, it's a large bunch of monks, and there was one monk who was the authority on on uh, the the discipline on the vinaya, um, the the rules of this of the sangha, and then there was another monk who was the authority on on the on the doctrine on the Dharma, on the teachings of the Buddha. So that poor guy apparently left a little bowl of water in the latrine one day and, and the, the other, you know, the guy who was the head of the, who was the master of the, the discipline said, ah, that's, that's an infraction. You have to apologize to the Sangha. And the other guy says, no, it wasn't. 
you know, and yes it was, no it wasn't, more taste, less filling. And so they were going at each other and, and they, they couldn't settle the thing. They came to the Buddha and the Buddha said, cool it, this is, they said, no, no, they said, you don't worry your enlightened little head about this, we'll, we'll take care of this. And of course they didn't. So the Buddha finally got fed up and he left. And he went off to see his cousin, Anuruddha. He had a lot of cousins. So he shows up and Anuruddha had become a monk and was living with a couple of other uh, monks. And uh, the Buddha says to them, I hope that you all live in, a, in concord, Anuruddha, as friendly and undisputing as milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Surely we do, Lord. But, Anuruddha, how do you live thus? Well, the venerable Anuruddha replied, Lord, as to that, I think that it is gain and good fortune for me here that I am living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain acts and words and thoughts of loving kindness towards these venerable ones, both in public and in private. And I think, why should I not set aside what I am minded to do and do only what they are minded to do? And I act accordingly. Why not set aside what I'm minded? Anybody ready for that? (laughs) I set aside what I am minded to do and do only what they're minded to do. You need an example of non-greed. seems to me pretty uh, pretty vivid. Non-anger. I, uh, I, was, I was on, on retreat recently and one of the teachers read this story and I went, I went to an interview with her. I said, where did that story come from? And she said, oh, it's from a book by David Halberstam called The Children. I said, oh, I got to get it. So I got back and I ordered it and it came and it was like that. I had no idea it was like this when I ordered it, but I guess, uh, uh, you know, uh, anyway, it's the story of the, uh, uh, the civil rights marchers. It's called The Children because these people were 19, 20, the people sitting in in Nashville, 21. My gosh. And I'd never heard of a guy named Jim Lawson before. Any of you guys know his name? Pretty amazing. He was the architect of um, the nonviolent strategy, King's nonviolent. He was the one who taught the classes and the underlying philosophy behind it. He taught the students how to be nonviolent. And... um, you know, I'm, ab- I'm, I'm convinced by now that, w- that if, their, if the response had been violent, it, been, it wouldn't have aroused the, the conscience of the country. It wouldn't have called out the, the segregationists. Anyway, Jim Lawson, pretty remarkable guy. This is a story that, that, uh, that Carol Wilson read on, on, on retreat about a situation where Jim Lawson was walking along on a march from well, it's told by a guy named Bernard Lafayette, who was on the march. Um, 
And Bernard was in a group of students walking from the First Baptist Church to the lunch counters. This is in 1960. And he was near the end of the line, about three or four people from the end. Suddenly, a group of white toughs charged the black line and attacked one of his colleagues from American Baptist, a young man named Solomon Gord. It happened very quickly, with a speed and intensity all its own, yet at the same time it seemed to take forever. The whites had knocked Solomon Gort down, and they were kicking him. And Bernard moved as quickly as he could to get back and protect Solomon, to put his body down on Gort's as they, as they all had been taught. That would make them switch their attention from Solomon to him. And they did, beating and kicking him instead. Just then, Jim Lawson walked over. He did not rush over um, as if to an accident or as if to stop a beating. Instead, he walked over very calmly as if to a long-standing appointment. It was as if he knew all along that Solomon Gort was going to be knocked down and mauled and that Bernard Lafayette was going to try to protect him. Lawson's arrival shifted attention of the whites from the fallen Gort and Lafayette to Lawson. The thing about Jim, Bernard remembered, was that he was so utterly self-assured, so confident, as if he were accustomed to dealing with white toughs beating up fallen black demonstrators every day of his life. Jim seemed nonchalant, just another day at the office. The leader of the whites was sporting what was the prevailing uniform of the day for white toughs, black pants, black leather motorcycle jacket, duck's ass haircut. When he saw Lawson, he was enraged by Lawson's coolness, and he spat at him. Lawson looked at him and asked him for a handkerchief. The man, stunned, reached into his pocket and handed Lawson a handkerchief. And Lawson wiped the spit off himself as calmly as he could. Then he looked at the man's jacket and started talking to him. Did he have a motorcycle or a hot rod car? A motorcycle was the answer. Jim asked a technical question or two, and the young man started explaining what he'd done to customize his bike. Amazingly, Bernard thought, these two men were now talking about the levels of horsepower in motorcycles. A few seconds earlier, they had seemed to be sworn enemies, one ready to maul the other. By this time, both Solomon Gort and Bernard Lafayette were back up on their feet. The line was moving again, and Jim and the young man were still talking about the man's motorcycle. In that brief, frightening moment, Jim had managed to find a subject which they both shared and had used it in a way that made each of them more human in the eyes of the other. As they walked away, Jim waved to the man. The man remained still, neither accepting the friendship nor, for that matter, rejecting it. It had been a marvelous example of Christian love for Bernard. Non-anger. I mean, I can put myself in that situation and... Anger shows up. I mean, easy to imagine that, right? Non-anger. Just a just a great just a great image and an example of what non-anger might be. Non-cruelty. We can certainly imagine cruelty and and our our. And the, the stick, it's the stick. And our approach to law enforcement, our approach to punishment is certainly based on the stick. That's we, we try to dissuade people from doing things that, uh, by, by threatening and by punishing and creating 
unpleasant experience, hopefully. Isn't that what we do? These are a couple of stories from um, a book that's coming uh, from uh, book, uh, Jack Cornfield, The Art of Forgiveness. It says, in the Babemba tribe of South Africa, I looked them up there down near um, uh, Lake, is there Lake Tanganyika? Or is my mind totally gone? I'm sorry? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, okay. When a person acts irresponsibly or unjustly, he's placed in the center of the village, alone and unfettered. All work ceases, and every man, woman, and child in the village gathers in a large circle around the accused individual. Then each person in the tribe speaks to the accused one at a time about all the good things the person in the center of the circle has done in his lifetime. Every incident, every experience that can be recalled with any detail and accuracy is recounted. All his positive attributes, good deeds, strengths, and kindnesses are recited carefully and at length. The tribal ceremony often lasts several days. At the end, the tribal circle is broken, a joyous celebration takes place, and the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back into the tribe. Non-cruelty. It's easier, it's, it's easier to imagine with that kind of example. But here's an example from our own, uh, from our own culture, and it's interesting. I think you may be familiar with it. It came, it's, it's, I think the story has been on, it's been on TV. No matter how extreme the circumstances, the transformation of the heart is possible. Once on a, this is Jack Cornfield writing, once on a train from Washington to Philadelphia, I found myself seated next to an African-American man who'd worked for the State Department in India, but had quit to run a rehabilitation program for juvenile offenders in the District of Columbia. Most of the youths he worked with were gang members who had committed homicide. One 14-year-old boy in his program had shot and killed an innocent teenager to prove himself to his gang. At the trial, the victim's mother sat impassively silent until the end, when the youth was convicted of the killing. After the verdict was announced, she stood up slowly and stared directly at him and stated, I'm going to kill you. Then the youth was taken away to serve several years in the juvenile facility. After the first half year, the mother of the slain child went to visit the killer. He'd been living on the streets before the killing, and she was the only visitor he'd had. For a time they talked, and when she left, she gave him some money for cigarettes. Then she started step by step to visit him more regularly, bringing food and small gifts. Near the end of his three-year sentence, she asked what he would be doing when he got out. He was confused and very uncertain, so she offered to set him up with a job at a friend's company. Then she inquired about where he would live, and since he had no family to return to, she offered him temporary use of the spare room in her home. For eight months he lived there, ate her food, and worked at the job. Then one evening she called him to the living room to talk. She sat down opposite him and waited. Then she started. Do you remember in the courtroom when I said I was going to kill you? I sure do, he said. Well, I did, she went on. I did not want the boy who could kill my son for no reason to remain alive on this earth. I wanted him to die. 
That's why I started to visit you and bring you things. That's why I got you the job and let you live here in my house. That's how I, how I set about changing you. And that old boy, he's gone. So now I want to ask you, since my son is gone and that killer is gone, if you'll stay here, I've got room. And I'd like to adopt you if you'll let me. And she became the mother of her son's killer, the mother he never had. Non-cruelty. It can take place in this culture. It can take place in our lives. Now, you know, these are examples that are pretty pretty heavy duty. And and if if we individually, personally, are not capable of the kind of actions in any of these stories, that's okay. There's almost no action that we take that is the result of a pure intention. There's multiple intentions in almost everything we do. You can find yourself at a meeting at, at work. Well, you're at work because you know, you've got to survive, livelihood, bring in some money. You may be at the meeting in order to you know, uh, be successful in, in your job. You want to prove something to your boss. You need to, you need to uh, oppose some crazy idea. There can be all kinds of reasons for being there. You know, there can be there can be multiple multiple reasons, multiple intentions. And when I was in politics, I used to find myself in that situation a lot. You know, there would be uh, something I would do might might be beneficial to my you know my public uh, appearance, and I could certainly pursue it for that reason. But I, the rule that I, that I made for myself was that if there was a, if there was, in my view, uh, a non-selfish reason, even if there were selfish intentions behind it, to go forward, to support actions, intentions that were, as I read it, um, for the general good. So multiple intentions are something we we uh, we can live with and work with and and, and pay attention because actually uh, becoming aware and mindful of our intentions is probably the most helpful. If you're on retreat, you know you, you pay attention to mindfulness of the motion of your hand and the muscles and. The in and out breath, and, and that's hard to do while you're, you know, when you're at work. But you can be mindful of your intentions, aware of your intentions during the day. And in terms of getting what you want, acting out of greed, ill will, cruelty, or generosity. Kindness and non-cruelty, compassion. Now we can recall. Um, we can recall the words of, an, of another teacher. He said, "Blessed are the peacemakers." And we can 
set that as our intention. So why don't, let me just, uh, let me just pause here and see where you guys are and what uh, kind of reactions you might have or questions about political activity I can talk about. Politics as a practitioner or we can talk about the Dharma of politics or you can flee. Please. Thank you. Thanks for your talk. I found myself um, really wondering what what context you would put um, the kind of action that the Buddhist Peace Fellowship participates in, that there must be some kind of um, political activity that one can pursue without getting caught in the kind of thing you're you're trying to say. Well, you know, the... um was my pen going down there. I think I think that almost um, the particular activity is not as important as the quality of the heart. So what's important uh, is to just check in with your intention. Like I say, multiple intentions are likely to be there. People on peace marches often are angry, um, and whereas. You know, killing for peace is probably not skillful in any imaginable way. Uh, anger is probably, um, it's, it's, it's not likely, it may not be reasonable to expect all anger to be gone from us. And, you know, we don't have to wait till we're fully awakened our hearts before we take action on behalf of others. I don't think, um, you know, Jim Lawson as as um, uh, as advanced a practitioner as he or the Dalai Lama or Dalai Lama still gets mad at mosquitoes. Okay, mosquitoes. But you know, I don't think Dal- the Dalai Lama or or Martin Luther King or, or or Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, these these people, um, you know, they're pretty. You know, the bar is is set pretty high. Let's watch our own intentions, intentions that are based on compassion. You know, uh, I can't remember whether, maybe it was the movie Gandhi, where he he asked the question, "Are, are you trying to help or are you trying to punish? So let's look at our intentions and, and go forward. There's no reason not, uh, to participate in our social life. That's part of our life. Let's just watch our own intentions so we don't make things worse. Thank you, because I think Buddhism sometimes runs the risk of coming across like it's saying, don't try to change the world at all. You know, and there are things that are worth standing up to with the right intention. You know, I remember the, the uh, Shunru Suzuki once uh, was quoted as saying to, to one, of, one of his students, he said, I love you just the way you are but I love you too much to leave you the way you are. Yeah. You mentioned in the mentioned in the beginning of and I didn't get it, Byron Katie in the book. Oh Byron Katie, she wrote a book called Loving What Is. Would you expand on that just a Yes. Um 
Byron Katie is, is a very interesting, uh, very interesting woman um, who had an awakening experience some years ago. And there are a lot of people who have very deep openings, but she came out of it with a little, uh, with a little practice, which she calls the work. Um, and you can you can track it down on the web. It's thework.com or thework.org. Um, and the work is is interesting. Basically, she has four questions, and she's she's addressing suffering and the end of suffering. It's in accord with the Dharma. Um, the the question she asks: If any idea you have about the way things are, or you know, and usually she has you identify things that are a problem for you. My son doesn't pay enough attention to me. My partner is whatever. My boss is. The world is. The you know. There are four questions, and the first question: Is it true? Um, you know, it's this person is too young to die. Is that true? Is it? And the second question: Is it absolutely true? My son should talk to me more, should call me every day, whatever. Is that really true? Is that ultimate? And then, so the idea is to, to, to relativize it a little bit. And then the question is, the third question, how do you feel when you think that thought? Because she's pointing at the pain that the thought brings. And when I was talking about pleasant and unpleasant and about the... Um, the, the, the fact that mental objects can be pleasant or unpleasant. The thoughts that we have about the world ca- can cause us suffering. How do you feel when you think that thought? And the fourth question is, how would you be without that thought? And she invites you to imagine the freedom that would be there without the thought. And... Um, and so she's, you know, this is a this is a Dharma teaching about the end of suffering that she points to, and the title of her book, her first book, "Loving What Is," she actually means loving what is. You know, we have a tendency, uh, boy, we, you know, have a tendency to not love what is, and to be and to be reactive negatively about some stuff. Why don't one of the uh, one of the teachers who was on, on the retreat was giving a Dharma talk. She was during the Dharma talk. She was talking about how uh, she was on retreat in England, and she wasn't an expert on Eng- birds from England. She saw these beautiful blackbirds, just gorgeous, and they had you know the eyes and the I don't know. I've never seen an English blackbird, but she said they were particularly stunning. And you know, when you're on retreat, you a bird get your attention. You spend a lot of time paying attention if there's an animal around. So she was loving the bird. And then she noticed one of these birds pulling a worm out of the ground. I mean, like right out of the cartoon pictures of the bird pulling pulling the worm out. And her heart went out to the worm. And she thought, oh my gosh, this beautiful bird is killing this worm. You know, that even the beautiful has a dark side. And I thought, well, you know, there are an awful lot of people who, who see the dark side of our president and would find it very difficult to imagine 
experiencing joy for his pleasure at his daughter's pending marriage. But as a father, it's hard not to be pleased unless you really think she's, you know, marrying Charles Manson or something. Um, So we can see our own reactivity. Do we love what is? She loves what is. She's, uh, she was, um, I, I follow her some, and she uh, has a blog, and was apparently a couple of weeks ago was diagnosed with second stage uh, basal cell uh, cancer. And her daughter wrote a post saying that when, she, her, when her mom called her, she said, um, ha ha, I've got cancer. She's starting radiation therapy soon, I guess, but she was loving what what is. Tough, very tough. But when we don't, we're suffering. And that's her point. And the Buddha's point, too. An open, loving heart, does it depend on the circumstances being the way we want it to be? If it does, where is our freedom? Free, are, are the quality of our heart dependent on the conditions of the world? No. Oh, Byron Katie is, is I, you know, check her out. Anybody else? Politics? Yeah, please. She will be. She'll be. Yeah, she'll be there this weekend, but it's sold out, and if you call them, they say, stay away. (laughs) Anybody else? Anybody wonder about politicians? Please. Well, I was a. I was a, um, the question was, what, what was my political, well, I, I, uh, I, I taught uh, political sociology at UC Davis for a while and then went to work in the Capitol as uh, leadership staff, worked for Willie Brown for mm. a while, so you can guess my political leanings. And I was, uh, um, I, I served as an elected county clerk in Yolo County for, for uh, four terms. That's interesting. And played uh, and played as a lobbyist in the Capitol and uh, in Sacramento and in D.C. All right, thanks. Yeah. So I've run into most of those people. So, you got any questions about what it's like out there? <laughs> Be happy to chat with you. Any other any other questions? I was just going to throw in the point someone else had said how sometimes. In some, sometimes in some of the Buddhist teachings, you know, you could also almost get the idea you're not supposed to ever try to change anything or you're supposed to accept everything the way it is. So it's good to hear what you had to say about well, that. Well, you know, so. that's, a, that's a very common misperception about yeah. Buddhism. And I think, I think it's because we think that, um, we think there's, that, that there's got to be an indifference you can't embrace, you can't love what is. Mm-hmm. If you actually love what is, you're going to take care of it. Yeah, that's a good point. And you're yeah. going to cultivate it. 
and to try to make things better. Rather than, you know, are you going to make things better or are you going to punish? Yeah. That's a good point, yeah. Um, Thanks for that talk on the politics. So could you comment a little bit on what you see going on in the Democratic race? In the Democratic race? Um, From the standpoint of... uh, the, the orientation of the two individuals that we're talking about? Well, I don't know what kind of a comment you want to get. Anything. I, I, well, um, I could be wrong. <laughs> but I, I, think, uh, I think that uh, it's going to be very difficult for Hillary because there aren't enough delegates up for grabs in the electoral process between now and the convention for her to come out ahead. And I think that the superdelegates are going to have to go with who won the elections because otherwise the party will be torn apart. And there are enough Democrats who don't find McCain unpalatable and I don't mean, I'm, you know, this country is not people like us. No. That I think it would cost the election. So, I, and I think the superdelegates know that. So I think that um, probably we're looking at uh, an Obama candidacy. That's my read. I could be wrong. Just, you know, notice your own reaction to this stuff. Because, you know, we like, we don't like. It's, you know, our practice is about cultivating our awareness. And we get lost in the object of our awareness. You know, Ajahn Jumian says, desire is like the moth and the flame. The moth only sees the flame. And, and everything else is dark. And the moth doesn't even recognize its own compulsion to fly towards the light. We don't notice the feeling of wanting. We just notice we just know how how strongly we 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 really care about how things are going to turn out. It's tough. I I ask in the uh, uh, my my sitting group in Davis, I asked everybody the day after the the uh, State of the Union speech how many people had listened. My gosh, almost nobody. How come? Can't listen. Can't, just can't. Where's the freedom there? You know, to not be able to even touch that because the opinion is unpleasant. Because the judgment that arises is unpleasant. And we're at the, you know, if, if that's the way we react to the, to the, the environment, where's, where's the freedom? And we cringe at what we see. And I had a practice for, for some years where uh, I would get off work and I would put on the, the, uh, the talk show crazies. And um, the rule that I had for myself was as soon as I got reactive, 
I had to turn the radio off. So as soon as I got reactive, but I would just, and it was great because I could just shut them up by hitting the thing. But my goal was to be able to get from the parking lot to the freeway entrance with the radio still on. It took, it took six months to be able to do that. Part of it was because the, the guy who was on at that time was Michael Savage. Particularly hard to listen to. But at a certain point, uh, he just became, you know, I could, I could hear him and I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't, it, it was, it was a, it was a practice. It took a while to do. Um, I knew what my goal was. I, when I was growing up, when I was little, the preachers on the radio on Sunday morning, you know, I, I'd hit him on the station and I just want to, I just go right on by. Who was, who cared? And that's what I wanted. I wanted that indifferent. I didn't care. I wanted to listen to something. And it took me a while, and I and that's I finally got there. And it was just just deconditioning. And it's it's worth it because I can listen to all those people now. And I can hear what they're saying. And you know, Ken Wilbur has has uh, one of the things that you guys know who Ken Wilbur is. You know, an American philosopher, very, very profound, very, very powerful. I recommend his his work. And he, one of the one of the underlying uh, uh, thoughts of his is that nobody's completely wrong. Nobody's completely wrong. But we only look at the dark side of the people we don't like because it makes us feel better. It, enhances our feeling of self. I'm not that. I'm this. Well, that's creating self. Watch, you know, Anisha Dukkha Anatta, not self. How do we create self? I'm not that. You know, I don't like that. I oppose that. I'm this, not that. We create self that way. So the opinions that we cling to define who we are. And we like that. It's pleasant have a sense of who we are creates a sense of permanence. We don't like this impermanent stuff. Right? <laughs> Particularly the ultimate impermanence. You know? we, don't, we don't like it. So that feeling of self and all the opinions that, that we clothe ourselves in while we think it's comforting, it's also, it also sets us up for suffering. And so our political realm is full of suffering. Please. I find my, I find, on. Getting so much attached to, um, Opinion, whether it's one opinion or the other, that that it's not really that much opinion. It's, I think, like just I think the looking at one opinion versus the other opinion is. Um, I think getting caught in that is just part of what you're saying. Is um, just I get I get uh, reactive to the whole systemic thing of it, of like. Just it's about power, really, uh, like you were saying, and not really about I believe this and I believe that. It's about power and maintaining power on some level. Well, we all power is about getting what you want. We all want what we want. We all want to get what we want, and we 
uh, when we don't, and when somebody else gets what they want and we're not getting what we want, we get angry. You know, the Buddha says that anger comes from not getting what you want and from insults to self. Yeah, and in that sense, like I, you know, power is just, I mean, opinion is just a tool. Opinion is power. a tool. Opinion is a tool. It's, it's a tool, but it also is a tool that expresses what we want. You know, it, it, often, it often is, uh, you know, when you have an idea about the way things ought to be. You know, it, there shouldn't, it shouldn't be about power. You know, so there's wanting in there. And wanting itself is, it hurts. You know, grieving is about wanting it to have been different. So it's just the wanting. And the wanting can make you cry. It can, it can be, it can be so painful. Just, you know, not wanting, you know, the, the reflections. You know, all the, all the subject to change, all, all that I love, all, all those that are dear to me are of the nature to change. There's no way to avoid being separated from them. It's the truth. We don't like it. It's painful. We want it to be different, and it hurts. And it's that wanting, just the wanting, that's so painful. Power is the ability to get what we want. When we get what we want, we feel empowered. We feel relieved. And, you know, getting the ability to get what we want depends on resources and it depends on skill and it depends on all kinds of things, conditions. But, you know, you, go, you show up at a window of a bureaucrat and they say, no, you don't get what you want, they get what you... <laughs> what the, we get angry. You know? Irrita- irritated. So... It's not the particular thing that upsets you. It's the, it's the clinging to whatever it is. It, it just my experience. Please. When we uh, talk about the different entities that we have in us, meaning let's say we are made up of mind, body, spirit, and I consider, let's say, the heart being the home of the spirit. And then we say I or we, and I'm trying to understand what does I or we mean? Is that the whole or the three and four, or what is I or me or we? Well, you know, all of those words, mind, body, spirit, I, we, what do any of them mean? In, in the West, we think the whole universe is about matter. It's material. And the mind arises from the neurology of the brain. And this is a material world. And, um, right, isn't that, and, and we've got our science that deals with all the measuring this and, and all that. And in the, in the East, 
they think, well, this is a men- the universe is all mental and everything arises in the mind and passes in the mind. All, the, all this matter just appears in the mind. The Buddha said, well, they both depend on each other. And if you, if you pull one of them out, they both fall. So what's the right answer? Now, these are words, they're concepts, they're thoughts in our mind. So we're the Eastern way that we're saying that I as the mind? I is a word. I is a concept. It's a thought. It's, um, if, if, if I ask you to imagine, and it arises and it passes. If I ask you to imagine an equilateral triangle, think of an equilateral triangle. Is that the same equilateral triangle you thought of last time you thought of an equilateral triangle? Is there this realm of, is there this platonic realm of forms that we access at some, or do we create, does it appear and then disappear? Where was it in the meantime? Our experience, you know, changes. There's stuff in it. And it changes. Constantly. What is I, heart, mind, body? You know, the, the, Zen, the Zen people have, uh, they have a fun way of, they poke at that with all these, you know, the koans that make it impossible to, to answer with our conventional thinking. You know, mind, if you want to separate mind and heart, that's a conceptual separation that isn't made in the East. It's all one. And actually, if you check your experience out and try to draw, we've got a a conceptual line between mind and body. That's a conceptual line. Where is the line between mind and body in our experience? The experience is just right there. Is there a line in between it? So if you just look at the experience, I'm not sure whether that's a helpful answer or not. We're running running on again. Um, And I know some of you need to flee. Uh, but I'm happy to, to uh, address any other questions if you want, want to know whether what I think of Elliot Spitzer. <laughs> 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 Thank you guys for your attention. <laughs>